This podcast is made possible by Host Analytics and U.S. Bank. This is Todd Seifer, CFO of Business Solver, and you are listening to the CFO Thought Leader Podcast. This is episode 373. Guess what? They just made me the CFO at Foot Locker. And she says, that's terrific. And I said, yeah, here's the downside. They're $1.4 billion in debt. They don't have any cash. And last year, they lost $100 million. From Middle Market Media, this is CFO Thought Leader, where we speak to finance leaders about driving change within their organizations. I'm Jack Sweeney. On today's show, we feature part one of a two-part interview with Bruce Hartman, CFO Emeritus of Foot Locker, Cushman Wakefield, and Yankee Candle. I'd argue few finance careers have as many surprise chapters, including his latest, which has led Bruce to write a book. Buckle up. Our interview with Bruce Hartman begins after these words from our sponsor. It's no secret finance professionals are dealing with some pretty complex problems these days. Now more than ever, they need tools that can help them streamline complex workflows and focus on bigger strategic issues. By bringing your finance organization together on a single cloud platform, Host Analytics automates everyday processes that would otherwise slow you down. By streamlining your planning, modeling, consolidation, reporting, and analytics, Host helps you connect your organization so you can react more quickly to changing conditions and make better business decisions to optimize performance. Let Host Analytics be your partner in leading the evolution of your business. marquee companies, including Foot Locker, where he helped to alter the firm's turnaround chapter and served as CFO for 10 years. Bruce, welcome. Well, thank you, Jack. Real pleasure to be talking with you today, and uh, hopefully I can add some insight. Well, I don't think there's any doubt about that, and having had the benefit of uh, studying your bio, uh, I have to say you have one of the more interesting finance careers we've come upon uh, for a while. Uh, including your latest chapter uh, as an author, uh, which we look forward to learning more about. But first, as we always do, if you don't mind, take us back and identify for us what experiences you feel help prepare you for a CFO role. Well, it was actually, there, there were two steps before I was made CFO that were very helpful in uh, my formation. You know, I was a young, uh, early 30s uh, at May department stores, and they promoted me to being a controller at one of their divisions. 
And the reason why I bring that up is, you know, throughout the early part of my career, I had uh, really benefited from a lot of wise mentors and leaders. And two things they said to me, uh, particularly as I was going to this job, is the first is to always rely on what I see and not what I hear. And the reason why that's important, in every company, opinions exist, but the facts always trump opinions. So their, their caution to me was, particularly as a, as a finance person, is, well, not to not pay attention to opinions. Make sure you know the facts in every meeting because they're going to count on you as a finance person to have that stuff organized. So that was, that was instrumental, number one, and particularly when you're now in charge of a larger organization, I found that to be some of the best advice that I got. Um, the second thing was uh, most folks uh, considered me to be a strong visionary. Now, whether that's true or not, I guess, is always a matter of debate, but many of my supervisors uh, had, to had told me I was a very strong visionary, but I also had to know the details. And particularly in finance, um, you know, many times you have to be aware of exactly what the numbers are saying um, because that's what people expect from you, particularly if you're one of the leaders in the finance department. So while I had great ideas on how to be successful in a business, uh, I think as a finance person, one of the most important things was being able to marry uh, my visionary ability with a great sense of detail. And it didn't come easy. Um, you know, but over time I learned it, and I learned it really well at this at this first assignment, uh, which I thought was I thought was very helpful in um, how I went went forward. the The second step was um, I was made this later on, about a couple of years later, I was made the CFO of a very large billion dollar division of uh, more department stores, and along the way I had been coached and counseled and, you know, one of the great things about May Department Store is they had great training um, for us young executives. And, you, you know, you learn very quickly when you're the number one finance person, you are ultimately responsible for all financial decisions. But there is, uh, it's virtually impossible to be part of every decision. So one of the things that um, I learned was you have to have a good organization and you have to look beyond the resume of the people. You have to look for five, five important characteristics if you were going to assign and delegate responsibility to other people. So, you know, those five things that I learned, number one was the, you know, look for people who have the ability to get things done. And we know those people. Those are the people that you have a conversation with, they, they hear what you have to say, and they always surprise you with their ingenuity in getting things done, no matter how difficult the task. So that was number one. The second thing was uh, surround yourself with people that listen to learn. These are people that ask questions first and state their opinion second. The third is, as I said before, knowing the details is really important. But beyond knowing the details, being able to analyze effectively is very important in terms of understanding what the details are telling you. So that was the third characteristic they looked for. The first is surround yourself with people that develop other people. Because in every organization, there's invariably openings. And it's uh, very um, disruptive if you have to go to the outside to hire people. So if you have managers working for you, 
I found uh, that developed other people. You could quickly fill any of the openings that would pop up uh, here and there um, throughout a year. And being able to have people that were already ingrained in the culture, knew the system, and were up-and-coming people was very important. So we really relied on managers that had the ability to develop others. And the fifth is people that had a results orientation. So in other words, their first thought was, how do I get things done? How do I get them done well? And what, what can I do next to help folks? So those five things, again, their ability to get things done, number one. Number two, um, an ability to listen to learn. Three, analyze effectively. Four, develop others. And fifth, have a uh, results orientation. So by what I found, particularly in this, this first assignment, um, is that by selecting and promoting people with these characteristics, many of the decisions that we made w became successful. And in fact, in my first year as the CFO for this division, in almost all of the uh, financial statistics that measure a company, we were number one in all of uh, the main department stores. So it's not because of me, it was because of the great people that uh, I hired and sticking to these principles. Wow. I, I, I love it. I want to come back to these principles. I want to revisit each one with you, and, and we'll, we'll do that a little later. Uh, but I just want to get uh, some clarification then. Now, at the time you were with Mays, you were – uh, in St. Louis, is that right? Yes, I had uh, Jack over, I had a very good career with them, and over a nine-year period, I was in seven of their divisions. I kept getting promoted, um, you know, because of my flexibility. Um, and so my last tour in um, May Department Stores was in St. Louis as the divisional CFO for Famous Bar. Now, I want to uh, touch on uh, the two characteristics you shared with us. One was that you realized you were uh, detail-oriented, but also visionary. But I don't, you know, there are a lot of people who would like to think they're a visionary, but it's not, it's not like you wake up one morning and you are. When did it become clear to you that you sort of had a big-picture outlook, and, and did someone point it out to you? Did you have a mentor who encouraged you to tr try to, uh, you know, communicate that big picture capability that you had? Yeah, it was interesting, you know, when I first started my career, you know, we, you're not really aware. I don't think any individual is really aware of what your orientation is. And it was no different for me. And it would pop up in my annual reviews when I sat down with my supervisor or in sessions with uh, various people who took an interest in my life. And they would always bring that up. Uh, and that, and I found that I always got jobs or assignments that required that. Um, and I think that's because I was fortunate to have bosses that played to my strength. And in terms of the detail, it was always a caution. And it's you hear it enough times, you know you got to pay attention to it. And, you know, particularly when you're young and you're in um, meetings, especially with detail orientation, knowing the facts is really important. Um, but I think the two work together. I don't think you can be a great visionary without knowing the facts. And at the same point in time, if you are a great visionary, you need to know the facts. Um, because many bad decisions are made just with a small twist or turn. And that's why I stressed before that opinions are great. And they're, they're a great clue. 
Um, but without them being verified, you can lead the company down the wrong path. And that was uh, that was the caution I got from the folks that said, okay, well, you know where to go. You can think big picture, but you need to know the facts as well. So that's how that developed. Uh, it was mostly my paying attention to some really smart people. Let me ask, you know, people with the set of skills that you have sometimes uh, leave finance and become a CEO. Why did, what, why did you stick with finance? You know, it's interesting you ask that question, uh, you know, particularly Foot Locker. Uh, I had a wonderful CEO there. Uh, the gentleman's name was Matt Sarah. And, you know, Matt called me in the office one day, and he said, your job is to do whatever I don't want to do. And I always, you know, chuckle when I remember him saying that. But beyond just being a CFO, I was also in charge of supply chain, IT, and, you know, HR functions and purchasing functions and things like that. So it was more of an expanded CFO role. And I took, uh, I took great pride in being a number two person. And that came from working for a gentleman named Jerome Loeb, who was the COO of uh, made apartment stores. And he said to me, you know, Bruce, there's great honor in being a number two. It makes the company work better, and you have those skills. So in terms of being a CEO, uh, particularly in retail, it's very hard to move, and there's very few examples of uh, great CFOs slash COOs that move to uh, the merchandising or the merchant side of the house. And when I was at Foot Locker, I pretty much handled most of the administrative function, and Matt handled most of the merchandising. Because in retail, sales sales drive the business, and you really have to know um, the business really well. But I also took a lot of pride in my job, and um, you know, never really focused on you know becoming a CEO. I was more interested in doing a good job at what I was doing at that time. Foot Locker was a turnaround chapter. Can, can you give us a, maybe a, an abbreviated edition or however you'd like to share that story with us? But that had to have been one of the more interesting chapters of your career. It was. I remember the day, uh, Jack, I remember the day that they made me CFO. The stock hit its lowest. Uh, I think it was $3.45 a share down from as much as somewhere in the mid-20s. And uh, I remember calling my wife and saying, guess what? They just made me the CFO at Foot Locker. And she says, that's terrific. And I said, yeah, here's the downside. They're $1.4 billion in debt. They don't have any cash. And last year they lost $100 million. So, you know, that was the start of that. And um, when, I got, when I got into my job, I quickly identified that, number one, Foot Locker is a great brand, was and is. Uh, 50% of all the premium sneakers in the world are sold through Foot Locker. So a great merchandising strength, which gave me, you know, a sense of comfort. Um, and the second thing was there was a lot of tertiary businesses that had nothing to do with our strategic plan. So my sense was if we could sell those businesses and get that distraction out of our way, we could do two things, one, raise cash, and two, be more focused on running the core business. And the third thing was, which I saw as an advantage, is we had some strong finance people in the organization, but they were too low in the organization to make an effect, have an effect on the company. And the folks that were in charge were fairly passive in pushing back on financial decisions. So 
one of the things that I did was identify the people that existed in the organization when I arrived, promoted them, um, especially if they had these five core values. And the second thing I was able to rely on a lot of folks from the past that could bring in new energy and ideas. So what I created was a blended organization. And it really wasn't, you know, though a lot of people give me credit for saving Foot Locker, it really wasn't me. It was really all these folks um, that, you know, learned, knew what they, they knew from the past what would work. And they also had the energy to do the job. And there were many times that first year, Jack, um, we were very, very close to bankruptcy. And a couple of times the CEO asked me if we should file bankruptcy. And one of the things that I pointed out to the CEO, I did a lot of research, there were very, there are very few companies, retail companies, that survive bankruptcy. So if our goal was to stay alive as a company, the first thing would be not to do something that could, in, in I think less than 5% of retailers survive over long term out of bankruptcy. There's a couple of reasons for it. Uh, one is bankruptcy is very distractive to a business. Uh, it takes your eye off the ball, which is not something a company that's struggling needs to do. And the second thing is the financial cost is very severe. So, you know, I pushed back on the CEO and the investment bankers and said, essentially that we have a great merchandising team, we have a great finance team in place, we're getting rid of a lot of assets, give us a chance. And so that first year um, was very hard, and we came very close a number of times to having to file bankruptcy. And in fact, in the third quarter, Jack, um, when we filed, we were getting ready to file our reports, we were $345,000 from missing our bank covenants, which would have sent a cast, would created a cascading set of events that would file us in bankruptcy. And I remember asking everybody, well, we're not going home tonight until we find the $345,000. And um, yeah, I just went to my office and let the entire organization work. And around 8 o'clock that night, um, the chief accounting officer and one of the folks in Treasury came in to say that they had found the money. And it was, believe it or not, in a utility deposit in California. Um, and that was just enough to get us over the edge. When we entered that fourth quarter, a lot of the things that I had seen in the merchandising area start to, started to come to fruition, and we really noticed it in December of that fourth quarter. And um, it was four things. One is they came out with, um, they were coming out with a brand new sneaker. It's now called Tuned Air, and it was created by Nike in conjunction with our merchants. Jack, we sold three million pairs of those um, after that after that introduction, which was a big lift to our sales. The second thing was Matt had just been made the CEO of the company, and he knew a lot of techniques that could lift sales and lift them profitably, and make us more visible to the customer. And I knew from Matt's background, he was also a department store executive like I was. So I understood what Matt was talking about. While the company may not have, um, most of the folks I talked to, I said, trust me, this gentleman knows what he's doing. And so a lot of the stuff that Matt put in place also really helped the company. The third thing was Foot Locker was one of the very first national retailers to introduce uh, electronic gift cards and gift cards in the store. 
And the reason why that was helpful is a lot of folks, and gift cards become very important for retailers. A lot of folks, when they buy Christmas presents, they just buy Christmas, uh, they just buy gift cards. And having one of those available really helped us as well. And the fourth thing that helped us, Jack, was a very strong finance team. Um, if you can imagine a football game, for most of that year, they played on the other team's five-yard line and kept holding off the, the, their, the other team's offense from scoring. And the reason why that's important is you can't continue to play from the five-yard line. But a strong finance team that can hold the wall for a while always will allow the merchants time to get their bearings and their, uh, their feet on the ground. And that's essentially the story of uh, Foot Locker. So it was strong merchants who were given time by a very strong finance team and a committed finance team. Um, that bought them time to uh, make Foot Locker the great company that it is. We spent a lot of time talking to finance leaders about how they are able to retain their people and hold on to good people. Given the grim situation that you were in and the, and the dark stretch of days uh, you were operating inside of, what, uh, how did you hold on to those uh, strong finance people? Well, it's, it's, it's a couple of things. One, it's charisma. Uh, you know, as a leader, you have to be believable. Uh, and I think that's part of what we did. We, we were never dishonest with employees. We would tell them things are tough. Um, and we were direct with them and we were honest with them. That's number one. And number two, it's the person that you put in charge uh, that helps you and the people that you put in the job. So you want to put people in a job that they focus on doing their job. They don't focus on external stuff that they can't impact. They just focus on doing their job. Um, so that's so people, is, the right person is, is important. And the people that we selected had that attitude. The second thing is, is when you're promoting from within, even if a company is struggling, people appreciate that. Um, you know, many of the employees that are still, still at Foot Locker, they started at the company in their 20s, and now they're in their 40s and 50s. And knowing that you can get ahead and be rewarded for doing a good job, I think is probably the most important thing that we did, is we appreciated the people that were working hard, but we also rewarded them. And I think it's a combination of getting people that think about doing their job and not being distracted by outside influences is number one. And number two, as a management team, I think making sure the employees of the company know they're appreciated is far more important um, than many of the other factors that a lot of companies employ. Thought Leader listeners, Bruce Hartman's CFO career unfolded over multiple companies and multiple industries. We have two more industries to share with you after these words from our sponsor. You want smart, clear, and honest guidance to help you meet the financial goals of your middle market business. With U.S. Bank, you have a partner who will help you find the right solutions to help your organization reduce payment costs, enhance control, improve cash flow, and expand your spend visibility. U.S. Bank's dedication to making ethical decisions and doing the right thing is at the heart of what they do, and their efforts haven't gone unnoticed. They've been named a 2017 World's Most Ethical Company for the third consecutive 
competitive year by the Ethisphere Institute. To learn more, visit uspayment.com slash middle market. I'm struck by how you you step foot inside Foot Locker under these circumstances, and you had the confidence, the charisma, of the all of what was needed uh, to accomplish what you did. What did May have good management training, or was there a component of your experience at May department stores that uh, you would uh, encourage other companies to replicate? I mean, or uh, what? Why? Or was your experience somewhat unique? No, I don't. I, so the main, for those of us at May, I don't think it was that unique. Um, but what I do see in other companies, it was unique. The the first thing is I was surrounded by really smart people. So when you're young and you're starting out, um, listening um, to your managers and your mentors and watching other people is extraordinarily helpful. And I had one of my early bosses said to me. Pay, to, pay attention to what I do that you think is right and try to avoid doing what you think I did that was wrong. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but what Joe was telling me, that's the name of the individual who told me this, was that to, to be successful, you have to, you have to watch great people um, do great things and try to understand why they did what they did. And like any young person, not everything that we see um, people do um, should we emulate? And being able to know the difference was something that was very important. So I was really lucky that I had some tremendous um, people that helped me. The, For instance, the uh, COO, Jer- Jerry Logue, who I told you when my assignment in Famous Bar, he would meet me every morning at 730 at, the, at my car because we parked near each other. And he'd walk me into my office. Uh, coaching me the whole way to the office. Some days that was uh, a difficult walk, and other days it was a great walk. So number one, it's people. Having smart people mentor and care for the younger executives I thought was very helpful for me. The second thing is our training was extraordinary. Um, We probably spent, I would say, 10 days a year in some form of training, whether it was how do you manage people, what do you look for in people? Um, how do you effectively communicate? So it was a big part of May's culture was that we all learned um, the basic values of the company. So hopefully that answered your question. Now, your next CFO chapter opens in commercial real estate, and I'm sure there's a, uh, a segue here, no, no doubt, uh, as CFO of Foot Locker, uh, you had a, a good deal of real estate to manage or uh, deals to manage. But what would you share with us? How do you get from one to the other? Well, it in, it's interesting you bring that question up because Cushman and Wakefield, uh, we, we expanded very quickly throughout the world. And Cushman and Wakefield, were, they were our brokers, uh, and they would select sites. And whether it would be in Europe or Asia or the Middle East, in the United States, there really are only eight uh, landlords, and so you don't really need an outside broker. You need a really effective real estate organization. And if I needed to, I could visit every landlord uh, in the United States in two or three days if I needed to do that. Um, however, when you get overseas, it's real estate is much more fractionalized. So, for instance, in Europe, we had – at the time, we had 500 stores, but we had 250 landlords. 
and it would be impossible for any real estate organization to know the terrain um, without um, having a great resource like Cushman and Wakefield. And because Cushman and Wakefield's the, I always considered them to be the premier brand. Now there are larger companies, but uh, Cushman and Wakefield's one of the largest um, in each one of the central business districts of the world. The thing I liked about Cushman and Wakefield is they never sold us or convinced us to do anything that was the opposite of what would be helpful to the company. company. So every real estate deal, they really worked for us. And for instance, we were contemplating moving to China. And they came back to us at, at their expense. They came back to us and said, you can't expand to China because your cost model is not going to work because in China a lot of the rents at that time were variable and we never would have been able to cover our fixed costs because the rent would just keep going up. And I always admired uh, the broker who told me that because it cost him a lot of commissions, but he was more interested in doing the right thing for our business. So we, you know, I had very close relationships with uh, the folks at Cushman and Wakefield, but more importantly, I had a lot of respect for them. So when they asked me to join them, uh, really wasn't that hard of a decision to make because it was a great brand great company, and they're really great people. All right, and the, and the role that you played there, I mean, there were certain aspects of the business. I would imagine that you, uh, you know, didn't know cold as you would in perhaps uh, the retail environment. How would you characterize uh, if there was a learning curve at all as you moved into a new space? Yeah, there was a learning curve because real estate brokers are high flyers, and they're uh, it's kind of, it was kind of like being in the Wild West. Um, so, you know, in, in, as a CFO in retail, you have to know merchandising really well. As a CFO in real estate, you really have to know the brokers really well. And you have to understand what they're up against, what resources they need. So instead of being merchant-focused, you were more broker-focused, trying to make their lives easier. So that was that was the big transition. The second thing about Cushman and Wakefield is within a week of my getting there, uh, the CEO, a great guy, Bruce Mosler, came into my office and said he, he thought it would be best if we filed an IPO or sell the company. And I remember thinking, wow, this is going to be a different experience for me. Um, you know, one week on the job and all of a sudden I'm doing a capital markets deal. And, you know, we were able to get it done. Uh, we doubled the EBITDA. Uh, that year as well, we significantly increased the value of the business. So that, that experience was very interesting because, one, it was, you know, the first time I was in a capital markets deal on the other side. And the second thing was learning how valuable people are, particularly salespeople, in terms of making sure you get resources for them. So those are the two big learnings uh, for me at Cushman and Wakefield. And then you open yet another uh, CFO chapter in another business that seems entirely different from uh, the real estate business. So, you know, when, at Cushman and Wakefield, we, uh, you know, we eventually sold the company. And uh, that kind of changed the dynamics of how I would work and, you know, what I would do. So, um, you know, I was open to a move at that point. Um, and our, one of the bankers in New York City, one of the investment bankers, and I didn't know this at the time, uh, but 
Yankee Candle was looking for a CFO slash chief administrative officer, and um, they contacted me directly um, to see if I would go work for them. The thing that attracted me to um, Yankee Candle was three things. Number one, it's America's most passionate brand, by the way. So 93% of the people that use a Yankee Candle product passionately support it. Um, and anytime you talk to anybody, um, and I, I did a lot of the uh, background research, anytime I mentioned Yankee Candle, the people would smile. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a product that is emotionally attracted to its customer. The reason why that's important is I think for any finance person, it, it's, it's working for a company that has a great brand and a great reputation. Uh, makes life a lot easier for you, uh, particularly to do your job. The, the second thing I liked is the folks that worked at Yankee Candle were very, very strong. There was not a lot of internal conflict. Everybody worked well together, and that was largely because of the CEO, Craig Ryden. Um, tremendous person, um, personal characteristics, and um, just somebody that you just admired and you enjoyed being with in any meeting. So that was the second thing. And then the, the third thing was um, I thought there was great expansion opportunity, and there was. Um, and that was something I enjoyed doing, particularly at Foot Locker, and I felt like I could do it again. So those are the three reasons I went with Yankee Candle, and all those bore out well. While each chapter of Bruce Hartman's career is rich with intrigue and insights, no chapter is perhaps more surprising than his latest, which began with Phil returning to school. Step back in, in the classroom for a, for a second here and look around. Is there anybody like you who was sitting in that classroom? You know, Jack, that's, that's a great question. No, there wasn't anybody like me. Join us next time to learn about Bruce's latest academic ambitions and the book he authored that's due to be released on Amazon this month. Thanks for listening. It's Jack Sweeney with a quick note that CFO Thought Leader now has a quarterly print magazine. That's right, print. Each issue will profile 25 different CFOs. Let me repeat that, 25 CFOs. Other uh, print publications are lucky if they're able to bring you five CFOs per issue. What we understand is that you want to consume content in multiple ways. But wait a minute, there's something more here. We wanted this print magazine to be a podcast companion. So when you receive it, we want you to quickly thumb through it and maybe identify which episodes you have missed. We want you to dog ear those pages, as well as uh, perhaps the pages that feature CFOs 
from episodes you already listened to but found maybe a little extra value from. 12 months later, you will have a library of 100 CFO profiles highlighted with your insights or comments alongside the CFO thought leaders. Now, how much are we charging for this one-of-a-kind 100 CFO profile library? Annual subscriptions are $119. We think that's reasonable. We thought about it a little bit, but that's that's what we came up with. Uh, visit us and subscribe to CFO Thought Leader magazine at cfothoughtleader.com, where the future of finance is listening. <laughs>